Welcome to Cornerstone. My name is Johnny Artavanis. I lead the New Hall Bible Study with Ryan Zamros, and uh, I'm thankful for our crew that normally is sitting over on this side of the room. Are, are all the studies kind of sitting? It's kind of like a lunchroom in the eighth grade. Um, our studies over there. Um, well, I'm thankful to open up God's Word with you. Harry got the audible, which means I got the audible, and I'm eager to look with you at really a story, an event that takes place in John's gospel this morning. Now, potentially you've seen the movie Top Gun. It was a good movie, I'll take it. Harry really loves planes and trains. And if you know Harry, for about a year, the previous year, he, he will go home at night and he will tinker with his new trains that he's been working on in his living room. But he goes through phases and he likes planes and trains and he loves Top Gun, and we saw Top Gun, and if you know Tom Cruise, he is the main face or one of the main leaders of the religion of Scientology. David Miscavige, who is the leader of that religion, was one of the best, or the best men in one of Tom's previous marriages. Tom Cruise says this about Scientology. He says it actually healed him from his dyslexia. Scientology was founded by L. Ron Hubbard in the 1950s, and Hubbard wrote 600 pieces of fiction. He's the most published author of all time. And here is what they believe, uh, Scientologists, that is. They believe 75 million years ago, billions of extraterrestrial beings were sent to Earth by Xenu, the dictator of the Galactic Confederacy, which is composed of 26 stars and 76 planets, including Earth. Well, 75 million years ago, Xenu brought humans to Earth. He dropped their thetons, or released their thetons, their souls, into into the environment after dropping their bodies into a volcano. The people are now angry, and they've been riddled with these negative emotions and traumatic experiences from being dropped in this volcano from Xenu, the dictator of the Galactic Confederacy, and now they have to work through these negative emotions and experiences that they have, and they don't even really know why they have these negative emotions or experiences. So in the process of becoming clear in Scientology, you go through a series of what's called auditing, where you work with the therapist, you give them big bucks so that they can unlock really why you have all these negative emotions and feelings. That's why Scientology is often full of wealthy people because the higher you ascend in achieving this clarity, the more they're unlocking for you why you have trauma, negative experiences, morality issues. When L. Ron Hubbard was asked the most important question of all, who is Jesus, this is what he said. Jesus never existed as a person but rather he was an electronic idea implanted by the true powers of the universe into the mind of someone between incarnations about 600 BC. This implant is labeled R6 and occurred while this person between incarnations was watching a madman or something. Later on, Hubbard said this, Jesus is nothing more than electronic, mystical, biological implant, and the implant has all of the characteristics of a pedophile. What a bizarre answer to the world's most important question. Who is Jesus Christ? And if you're at Grace Community, I'm assuming you know the answer, but at times what we all need is a reminder of who Jesus declares himself to be. Muslims believe Jesus was a wise teacher, a great prophet, a miracle worker, but not God. Hindus believe that he was an enlightened man, a wise teacher, 
and one of their 300 million gods. Buddhists believe that he is a kind and holy man, a wise teacher, but nothing beyond the Buddha himself. I travel frequently. Yesterday, I was, or the last couple of days, I was preaching in Napa Valley and came home, and I'm often in planes next to people, and I ask people who they think Jesus is. And what's interesting is no one has ever responded and said, who cares? Everyone has an opinion and everyone has an answer because this is the most important question in human history. Who was this man, Jesus Christ? Well, in order to understand the identity of Jesus, we have to look at his own testimony concerning himself. This is the thrust of John's gospel. Who is Jesus Christ? And John gives us the purpose statement for why he writes in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, these things I have written to you so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, and in believing, you may have life in his name. Do you believe that this morning, that he is the Christ? And have you received life in his name? Now, we're going to land in chapter 8 today, but I want to take the scenic route with you to get there. And part of it is because chapter 7 and 8 really comprise one main event that's happening in the ministry of Jesus. And I remember listening to R.C. Sproul when I was a boy, And I remember him teaching through the Old Testament. And one of the things that he says as you teach, he says, find the drama, find the drama. The Bible is full of drama and something's happening here. There's a story that's unfolding for us. Up until this point in John's gospel, Jesus has been doing powerful signs. He's been casting out demons. He's been giving sight to the blind. He's been healing the lame, raising the dead. And maybe you've grown up with a felt board in front of you and you become so familiar with these signs, but we need to think afresh upon the power of the works of Jesus that no one, not even those who denied Jesus, ever denied his signs. They weren't done in a corner. They were for all of the world to see. He essentially eradicated disease from the nation. In chapter three, Nicodemus comes to him and says, teacher, we know that you must come from God. Why? Talk to me, what does he say? For no one can do the signs that you are doing unless he is from God. John chapter five, he performs a massive sign. John chapter seven, they ask and they say to themselves, when the Messiah comes, is he going to do more miracles than this guy? In verse 31, they're saying there's no way that there's anybody else that's ever gonna come on the landscape of human history and do more signs and wonders than this guy is doing. Jesus is constantly saying, Believe the signs, believe the signs, believe the signs. John 10, this testimony, believe the works that I perform in my Father's name. John 21, 25, the last verse of this gospel says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I love this. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is a monumental, massive testimony, the signs that you know about, the signs that you read of are merely a teaser trailer of what happens over and over and over and over again throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ. It wasn't, hey, you've seen a miracle? I haven't seen a miracle? Oh man, I want to see one. No, everyone was watching what Jesus was doing. And Jesus and John used the word signs instead of miracles because they signify that Jesus is doing something more He is drawing our attention to something beyond the miracle itself. These signs aren't random. 
They're not unintentional. Jesus isn't doing tricks. He is leading the people, even his own brothers, to ask the question, who really is this man, Jesus Christ? But the people didn't kill Jesus because of his signs. They killed Jesus because of what he said. In chapter five, he heals a man on the Sabbath and declares himself equal with God. And this is too much for the Pharisees to handle, so they try to kill him, and he withdraws from that region because his hour had not yet come. In chapter six, an entire year has really passed in the previous chapter, and during that time, Jesus will make the first of the seven I am statements, and he will perform his largest sign in terms of sheer number of people as he feeds thousands. And he issues this I am the bread of life statement, and these are unmistakable claims to his deity. Jesus says, I am the bread, and he brings their attention back to the wilderness where the people ate the manna that fell from heaven. And Jesus says that manna was only a foretaste of the bread that comes down from heaven. I am the only bread that can satisfy your soul. You followed me, Jesus will say in chapter six, across the sea because you wanted breakfast. But I will give you something far greater than a morning meal. I will give you myself. And it's funny, in chapter six, the people are just raving about a sign. They want to make him king. But then in a matter of verses, it says that many left him that day and no longer followed him. And at the end of chapter six, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, do you want to leave me as well? Now, chapters seven and eight occur at the same event. A drama is taking place. And the main commotion, the main buzz, the town gossip is about one subject, the identity of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we can get lost in the weeds, but that's where the purpose statement of John comes in. Don't miss this. The entire gospel is being written for you to ask the question, who is this man? And so that you would believe this man really is the Christ. Now, chapter seven, two, look there for me. It says, now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was near. So six months have passed from chapter six because we read in chapter six, verse four, that the Passover is taking place. And all these details are important for us because they remind us that this is real history and that context matters. And we will see that in play in chapters seven and eight. Now it says, this is interesting about verse three in chapter seven. It says, therefore his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may also see your works which you are doing For no one does anything in secret which he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now here's the reality amongst Jesus' brothers and his disciples. It says in verse five, for not even his brothers were believing in him. They're saying, you're losing ground, Jesus. Don't you understand? It's been a year since you've been in the city. You need to go back. Don't you understand? Your popularity is plummeting. Go back. Okay, we got some crazy ideas. We'll find the sickest guy in the city. Perform a sign. Then, then you'll be at the top of the list once again, but you've left the city. Now people are starting to forget your power. Let's go back, let's go back. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand. I'm on a different timetable. I'll do what I want. Verse six, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it and its deeds are evil. Jump down to verse 10 of chapter seven. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, Then he himself also went up, not publicly, 
but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, watch this, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray, yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. John wants to show you something. And God wants to show you something through his living and active word. There's something happening here that's almost taking place in slow mo. Jerusalem was alive with one question. We see it in verse 12. Who is this man? Some say he's good. Others say, no, on the contrary, he leads people astray. Who is Jesus Christ? Is he here at the festival? Is he gonna come? He's not yet here. A couple days have passed. Is he gonna come here? What's he gonna do? What's he gonna say? Now in verse 14, it says, but when it was now in the midst of the feast... Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. Jesus goes up to the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles at halftime. And he begins to do what he typically does. He begins to teach the people. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles is one of the several great annual feasts. But it was likely the favorite amongst the Jewish people. It was an eight-day celebration where the Jewish people would flock to the city and construct for themselves makeshift booths or tents, and they would live in those tents or booths for an entire week. They would gather branches and leaves and sticks and create shelters for their family, and thousands upon thousands of people and pilgrims would gather together in the city of Jerusalem. And they would do so for a particular reason. The whole festival was a picture a drama that God had instilled amongst his people so that they would never forget how God provided for them and led them when they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses had given the instructions for this feast back in Leviticus 23, and they were to remember, not just remember as far as, okay, don't forget these details, but they were to remember with great joy what God had done. And indeed, one of the hallmarks of this feast was unrivaled joy. If you guys ever been on a church camp out, Justin and I are trying to plan a, a church camp out for New Hall Bible study because I love them. But if you've ever been to a church camp out, it's like, this, this is awesome. All the families, all the kids, we sing at night, we cook some brats, whatever it might be. But imagine all of the people, hundreds of thousands, they may come from a city with no synagogue of their own. They flock to the city and it's a celebration like no other. The feast was full of symbolism, and there were things that happened every year that people came to expect. One of the great traditions is that each day of the feast, the priests would travel down to the Pool of Siloam, and they would take their golden pitchers with them, and they would dip their, water, or their pitcher into the Pool of Siloam and then return to the temple. All the while, thousands and thousands are following the priest back to the temple, and they're singing the Hallel Chorus, Isaiah 12. Worthy is God. God is our Savior. Let us draw water from the wells of salvation. This whole scene was to celebrate God's provision for them in the wilderness when he provided water from the rock, they would remember every single year, Dad, what does this celebration mean? Oh, son, this is a celebration because we have a good God. He's a gracious God. He gives us what we need most. He provides for every need. He protects us from the darkness. He's a near God, son. 
And this would go on for generations and for generations. And they would remember that God provided water for them to satisfy their parched throats. But these great festivals didn't just look back and celebrate what God had done. It was to anticipate that one day the Messiah was coming. Now, I, I went to Israel for the first time when I was in college, and I went by myself. I remember I graduated early, and I kind of went uh, around for a little bit and uh, went to find myself. Um, and uh, I remember the first time in the old city of Jerusalem, there was a dude rolling around in a Jeep with a megaphone. And I was like, what's he saying? saying the same thing. And I recognized the, the last word, and I asked someone, what, what is this man saying? What is this man saying? And he just said, oh, yeah, he's just saying, where's the Messiah? Where's the Messiah? Where's the Messiah? Where's the Messiah? Over and over, driving throughout the city, megaphone, tears coming down his face. It was one of the most pivotal points in my life. I, I will never forget it. That I've grown up hearing the truth about Jesus. And when you go there, they're longing and waiting for what's already come. And this anticipation was previewed at the Feast of Tabernacles, where they not only celebrated that God is a good God, he provides what we need, but one day the Messiah would come. Now Jesus teaches them in the following verses, and he says, I know that you're trying to kill me, but I want to jump down with you at verse 37, because we're trying to get to John 8, 12, but I want to summarize this entire feast for you. Verse 37 of chapter 7, it says, Now on the last day... The great day of the feast. Pause there. Jesus always picks the perfect place and the perfect timing to say what he wants. There's very few coincidental markers in your Bibles. This isn't just a chronological indicator. This is a theological indicator. Now, on the last day of the feast, here's what would happen. The priests would have done what they would have done every other day. They would have gone down with their golden pitchers to the pool of Siloam. The people would have returned with them, and they were singing the Hallel chorus, we will draw water from the wells of our salvation. Great is our God. And it wasn't this sobriety that sometimes we feel like is reverent. It was a celebration. I mean, I want you to imagine the wedding and Fiddler on the Roof and think, man, these people were, were going after it. They're excited. They're joyful. That was something that was a hallmark of God's people. Joy, absolute joy. We will draw water from the wells of our salvation. God is great. Son, do you believe that? Daughter, do you believe that? God is great. And they would return with the priest to the temple. But on the last day of the feast, the priest would do something different. He would circle the altar before he would pour that water down. And on the last day, he didn't circle the water once like he did on the other days. He would circle not twice or not three times, but seven times. All the while, the people's anticipation was mounting as they sang and they danced. And after the seventh time around the altar, the priest would then pour that water and then he would raise his hand and instantly the multitude would be hushed. And after he brings his hand down, Many rabbinical scholars would say the, the feast and, and the celebration would continue, but there was a moment where it's this crescendoing effect. And he raises his hand, and John leads us to believe, or we could presume it was at that moment. Jesus cries out, saying in verse 37, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
The thing is, it doesn't say Jesus stood and said. It says Jesus stood and cried out. Sometimes I, I watch like YouTube clips of different like uh, rabbinical Jewish scholars to see what they say about a certain passage. You know, even when I've been to Israel, oftentimes the tour guides that I have are not people that believe Jesus is the Messiah, but they know more about the Bible than anyone else you've ever met. And it, there's a scene that I watched. I, you know, I was like, yeah, this thing's got 800,000 views. I'll check it out. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a reenactment, kind of like a movie of this very scene. And it's Jesus. He's got like an apple. And uh, he rolls around a pillar. And there's like five people in the temple with like a, like a three-legged dog. And he rolls around and he goes, if anyone thirsts, come to me. And it's this philosophical idea that Jesus is just, you know, hey, what's up, everybody? <laughs> but it doesn't say Jesus said. It says Jesus, what does it say in verse 37? Cried out. If you don't have a shouting Jesus, you don't have a, shout, you don't have a biblical Jesus. It wasn't nonchalant. He's not apathetic. He's not saying, eh, whoever hears this, that's fine. It's at the climax of the feast when everybody would have been hushed. And he says, if anybody thirsts, let him come to me and I will give you living water. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. With the mounting opposition towards Jesus comes mounting urgency. Jesus knows that his hour is approaching this, the text says he cries out. Jesus is saying, let him come to me. The Feast of Tabernacles, he's saying, that celebrates my provision in the wilderness. It points to me. These waters will never satisfy the cravings of your soul. Only I can satisfy your soul. Jesus cries out to people then, and through his cry, down through the halls of eternity, he asks, do you feel the guiltiness of your sin and distress? Then listen to me. Come and drink. This was an unmistakable claim to deity. Jesus looks at your soul and says it's empty. Totally empty. And it's empty because you're drinking that which cannot satisfy you. And so Jesus is asking questions. And and often we see this throughout the scripture. And the scripture makes us consider, do we have that living water? Do you drink water from broken cisterns? Or have you come to the fountain of living water? There is no prescription for the parched human soul other than coming to Jesus Christ. Now watch the response of the people in verse 40 through 44. It says, some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? He has not, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. There is a confusion amongst the people regarding his deity, but there is no confusion about one thing. Look with me at verse 46. Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. He does signs, no one else can do. But it's not just his signs. It's what he says. We have never heard a man talk like this. The authority, the clarity, the compassion, the love, the confluence of all of these realities 
sandwiched into one man. He's unlike anything we've ever seen and unlike anything we have ever heard. Now jump with me to 8.12. Your Bible will likely have a note that it says that later manuscripts added the story of the adulterous woman in 7.53 through 8.11. So in verse 12, when it says, then Jesus spoke to them again, it's picking up in the same context or at the same event. So sometimes chapter divisions, they were added later on for itinerant preachers on horseback. We need to remember that we're in the same story, and that's what I want to cover with you. So we're at the last day of this great festival, and we already talked about the first great tradition of the people singing while the priests would pour water on the altar, but there was another tradition, another symbol that was greatly anticipated and is worthy of our consideration if we're to understand the significance of Jesus' words. He never is saying anything in a vacuum. He's always using cultural and contextual markers to punctuate exactly what he is saying. Now, each evening, four great lampstands were erected in the most packed and condensed area of the temple. These candelabras were 75 feet tall, and the young Levites would place kindling inside of those giant bulls up high. Then they would pour 65 liters of oil into these massive bowls. And each night of the, the feast, the young priests would climb these tall ladders to the great lampstands and all of the people would be hushed in anticipation and the priests would light the wick and a blaze of light would shine not only in the temple, but for all of the city to see. And this great light would shine and it would be a representative of what God did once again as he led his people through the wilderness by a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire by night. In those days, the light that shone for God's people was not a light bulb. It was God himself. And this light symbolized a number of things for the people of God. Number one, it symbolized the presence of God. God was not only in the tabernacle, he was with his people. God did not deliver his people to ditch them. He didn't just get them out of Dodge. He delivers his people then and now to dwell with and amongst them. And this was a symbol for him. We don't serve a distant God, the people wandering through the wilderness would say. He's not just up there. He's right here. Isn't it so kind of God? You know, sometimes it's a simple word that means so much. Isn't it kind of God to know the propensities of our heart in such a way that he provides a picture for the people that they would never, ever forget? There's a pillar of fire above our head, son. Do you know why? Because you have never had a single moment void of the presence of God. Now, not only was it a constant symbol of God's presence, it was also a symbol of God's guidance. In the desert, there were few identifiable landmarks. They were in a massive desert. How will the people be led? How could they navigate the desert when the heat would even produce mirages and distort their own perception. How can the people find their way? Well, the book of Numbers tells us that when the cloud moved, the people moved. So this is how God would guide them. Do you not know where to go? That's fine. Let me lead you. So God is saying multiple things through the fire, through the cloud. He's saying, no matter the darkness, I will be with there to lead 
and guide you, and I will be with you. But not only that, the light also functioned as a source of protection and as a means of deliverance. Now, if you remember in the movie Prince of Egypt, right, there's, they leave all the people, and then the guys come, the army's on the top of the hill. This is a real story, not just in the animated movie. So they're leading, and Pharaoh's army comes after them. And what is the hedge that protects God's people? Do you remember? A pillar of fire, protecting God's people and it was this light that delivered them from Pharaoh's pursuing army. The light functioned as a hedge between God's people and the darkness. It gave them additionally warmth during the night. It gave them shade in the cloud during the day. They remember that from beginning to end, God is a rescuing, guiding, delivering God. And so this is the light that they are celebrating the joy, the excitement, the torches are in hand. It's a festivity. And the young priests would climb the ladder up to these giant bulls in the temple, 10, and people are there and, and there's excitement. 10, 20, 35, 45, 75 feet in the air, priests would hold out their torch to drop it in the kindling in the massive bulls. And we don't know, it's not in the text but we can know that Jesus picks the right moment so we can guess. Then Jesus spoke again in verse 12, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus knows the next day the crowds will be gone. This is the last day of the feast. I want you to understand something about Jesus, and, and you know this. He is burdened for the lost. He is not aloof to the condition of them. He knows this is the last day. And that's why you see here, he's crying out. He doesn't say, hey, ball's in your court. See if I care, buddy. I've told you everything you need to know. No, I go. You want to back, back away from this deal? No, that's fine. No, he, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Do you understand your savior? I am the light of the world. Come follow me. Notice the stunning succession of wilderness wandering imagery that John is employing through his gospel. In John 6, I am the bread of life. What you ate in the wilderness, it points to me. John chapter 7, I am the water of life. I am living waters. What Moses did as he struck the rock, it points to me. John chapter 8, that light that led you through the wilderness, it points to me. Everything you look back and remember is really about me. I am the light of the world. I'm the one who guides you out of darkness. I am the one who protects you from evil. You look back and celebrate God's presence as he tabernacled amongst his people. Don't you understand? There's not a single coincidence in the gospels. There's a reason, John says, the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. This isn't a random selection of words. Jesus says, I am here. All of these events you remember were given to you so that you would recognize me when I came I am the light of the world in the presence of God. He's not a cloud. He's a person. Jesus makes a great claim and then extends a great promise. I want to examine closely this verse for a moment because every nuance of the grammar here is important. Jesus says, I, not me and someone else or 
anything else. I and I alone am, not was, not will be, not could be, or should be. I am the, not a, not one of. I am the light of the, not Jerusalem, not of this nation, not of the Middle East. I am the light of the world. He makes this great claim and then he provides a great promise. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says he is the light of the world and in doing so he draws our attention to a certain reality. We live in a world of darkness. I don't have to convince you of this, do I? If you open the newspaper, the deeper you go into the newspaper, the deeper exposure you have to the darkness. Even yesterday, I was reminded of this. I was thinking on the plane last night. I, I was up north in Northern California preaching for a student conference, and a kid came up to me yesterday, and he's in ninth grade, and he's asking me questions. You know, it's always funny. You never know what you're going to get from students. He goes, if a girl texts me, and I text, or if I text a girl five times, and she doesn't text me back, should I keep on texting her? And I was like, ah, probably not. You know, like, um, I said, no, buddy. I think you should give up. Um, um, but... And then I said, what else is on your mind, buddy? And uh, it's just amazing. You so, sometimes I, I hope you're aware of this. He, he starts with asking me that question. And I say, what, what else is on your mind? And he just said, uh, if someone commits suicide, do they automatically go to hell? And I said, no, not necessarily. No, no, but I don't, not necessarily. And I said, why do you ask? He goes, because in the last eight months, both my parents killed themselves. And I'm just like, and I share that with you going, I just remember, I, yesterday, it was yesterday, it was just like a less than 24 hours ago, just, just like looking at this guy, this baby-faced 14-year-old. I said, do you have siblings? I have two siblings. Where are you from? Vegas. What are you doing out here? Living with foster parents. How'd you come? I follow you on Instagram. And, it's, and I saw that you were at camp. And I said, oh, thanks for coming. Um, and it just, I, I, each week as I, as I travel, and each week you look at your phone, whatever it might be, you're just reminded, we live in a world steeped in darkness, in despair, in true depravity. What's the problem with the world? Well, Jesus is the great physician, and he gives us Really, he diagnoses the problem in a condensed way. The problem with the world is that we live in total darkness. And here's what Jesus comes to do in Colossians 1.13. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. The evidence that men and women live in darkness is all around us in the separation of family and the protests against you know, even uh, for, for choice with abortion. And Jesus looks at all of it. He just says, hey, every single variation of darkness has one solution. Me. The Messiah was anticipated in Isaiah 9, 700 years before Jesus arrives on the scene. And the prophet says, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light and Jesus says, I am that light. I am that light. 
John 12, 46, I have come as a light into the world so that no so that no one who believes in me will remain in darkness. What is, what is man's supreme need? And I, I think it's maybe worth reflecting on because this isn't just a time, church isn't just merely to be encouraged. It's a training ground, right? It's a, it's a huddle in a sense where we knock our helmets together and say, let's go, the world is dark, Jesus saves Man's supreme need is to know the light of Jesus Christ. Jesus asks you this morning through his word, do you need a way out of the darkness? Do you need guidance in a world of pollution? Do you need protection from the forces of evil? Do you need safety? Do you need shelter? Do you long for God's presence? Really, really long for God's presence. Do you know the way to your eternal promised land? Do you need forgiveness for the sin that is within you? Is your conscience riddled with memories of how you have failed others and how you have failed God? Do you chase lights that flicker and fade? Then listen to the cry of Jesus. I am the light of the world, not was, I am. Come to me, come drink this water. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. My light never goes out. There are so many invitations in the gospel. And I wanna talk about this as we begin to land the plane. So many different invitations. Jesus says, I am the bread of life, so come what? eat. Jesus says, I am living water, so come what? Drink. He says, I am the light of the world. If any man, what? Follows me. It's not enough, Jesus says, to observe, to listen, to appreciate, or admire You need to partake in what he offers. And this is a personal thing. No one can do this for you. Your heart must ache. It must feel the thirst of living a life void of living water. It must feel the hunger pangs of living a life void of true food. And it must feel the hurt and the pain and the grievance of living a life in darkness without a steady light to lead you. Who can come to Jesus? How do I know if Jesus wants me to come? I remember one of the first times um, when I got to Masters, I work at the Masters University now. I remember I I preached one time in chapel and I asked Harry, uh, I said, hey, any feedback? And Harry Harry is pretty reserved on the feedback. But he told me, um, hey, sometimes when you're trying to prove a point, you barrage people, like you give them too many verses. Um, and I was like, okay, you know, I'm thankful for his sharpening in my life. He's, we hang out every day, pretty much all day. And uh, I'm always sensitive to barrage people with verses to establish a theme, but I like themes in the Bible. But if you would just humor me for maybe 90 seconds as I show you a theme regarding who's invited to come to the light of Jesus Christ from Jesus' own words. John 3, 15, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. 
John 3.16, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John 5.24, whoever hears my word and believes in him has sent has eternal life. John 6.35, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6.37, whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 6.47, whoever believes has eternal life. John 6.58, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. John 7.38, whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John 12.46, whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. There is not a single footnote associated with the word whoever in your Bibles. You have never interacted with a single person that was not invited by your Savior to come to him. Do you understand that? You've never, never ever interacted with anybody that was outside of the Savior's invitation he doesn't say, hey, if you, if you look like this, talk like this, dress like this. That's the book of Jonah. We just finished studying that in our Bible study a few months back. It's, he has mercy on the Ninevites. He can have mercy on your neighbors. Why is Jesus so inviting? Well, 824 of John, unless you believe that he is God, you will perish in your darkness. He is Lord over heaven and hell, but he's not indifferent to where people go if they reject him. So he's making pleas, unless you believe, what else do I need to do? Who else do I need to invite? Can I make this any more crystal clear? You're invited. You live in the dark, you die in the dark, and you will spend eternity in the dark. And this matters to me, so please come to me. I am not a puny, desperate savior, but I am a loving and compassionate one. Sometimes we get so high on this theme that, yeah, God doesn't need us, that we get this idea where God's just like, yeah, who cares? No, no, God doesn't need us, but he calls us to come to him. He takes no pleasure in the punishment of the wicked and delights in men coming to repentance. What prevents people from coming to the light? Well, it's never a lack of evidence. It's something else. John 3, 19 and 20 this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. People don't come to the light because they love their sin. And this can be the sin of the prodigal or it can be the sin of the older brother. You can be lost in the church and you can be lost in the far country moral abandonment or moral uprightness and everything in between. I know that every minute after 10.30 is like 40 minutes in the mind of someone in here. <laughs> so I know I need to lay in this. <laughs> gotta get a seat, gotta get a seat. Um, the night before Jesus is taken away, John 13, he says, abide with me so that you may become sons of, anybody know? Light. Jesus is the light, but then he looks at his followers today and says, you are the light of the world. Do you understand that you were saved? In 1 Peter, it says, he 
rescued us from the domain of darkness in Colossians and that we've been redeemed from the darkness so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are an agent of light. And the church's responsibility is not just to huddle together and talk about how dark the world is. The church's responsibility as ambassadors is to shine brightly. Even as we've talked this morning and you can reflect on God's kindness in your own life, I pray that you can never reflect on his kindness in leading, providing, protecting you and think that that's just for you. Jesus invites everyone. So I hope we are faithful in recalling and remembering both what he's done but also our mission. Let me pray for us this morning. Father God, we're so thankful, Lord, that you are the only one that can satisfy our soul. You are the living water. And this, it says, you speak of your spirit and the spirit of God. It says in Romans 5, pours out the love of God into our hearts so that we would know this is not just an academic doctrine. It is a reality that thrills us. And God, you are the only light, that you are the only one who saves us. You are the only way that we can navigate this world of darkness with not just, not just getting by, but with hope and with a peace that surpasses all understanding because we know that you are leading us to our eternal promised land. I'm so thankful for Cornerstone, thankful for the believers that are gathered here today. Thank you even, as we mentioned, for our pastors and our elders. And we do pray for Harry today as he brings the word. We love you, God, and I'm so grateful that you love us. I pray this in your name. Amen.